Hey, hey, I'm Jimmy Bullard, and this is me old muck of Venus. We're back together, son. How are you? Hey, Bully, great to be back working with you. What are we doing here, though? We're starting a football club in podcast form. The only thing we know, it's called FC Bullard. After that, it's all up for grabs. So, we haven't got any players, we haven't got a kit, we haven't got a club badge, we haven't got a stadium. Correct. FC Bullard. Welcome to the club. This is a crowd podcast. This episode is sponsored by Walk On, Walk On. It's Andy Walker. To be more like Andy, go to patreon.com forward slash Joe Marler Show and become an official sponsor today. Joe Marler is a big hearted man and he's got a podcast plan. It's the Joe Marler Show. It's the Joe Marla Show. Oh, oh, oh. Hello and welcome to our show. I'm Joe Marla and this is Tom Fordyce. Hello, Tom. Hello, Joe. Um, I'm going to dispense with fripperies today because we've got a guest that both you and I are super, super, super excited about today. I'm only super excited about it. Look at your face. That's a super, super. <coughs> so the person we've got on today... I think of all the people we've met so far in all these happy weeks of doing your show, might be the job that you would want most. I have always wanted to be a police officer, mainly a detective, like Luther, or actually like, um, fuck, I know his name is Trevor. What was his actual name? Trevor Eve. Yeah, Trevor Eve. What, what was his, he was, he was in Waking the Dead. It was my favourite thing, waking up, walking up, growing up. <laughs> I wanted to be that detective that solved the murders and all that lot. Can't remember his name. Probably didn't care enough about it. Anyway, always wanted to be a detective. Haven't been it. I'm super, super excited to meet a real-life detective. Not only a real-life detective, Joe, Neil Lancaster. He was in the Met Police 25 years. He's done it all. Stakeouts, manhunts, interrogations. He's done it all, Joe. And he writes books as well, does he? He's now a crime novelist, um, a very successful one indeed. So I don't see any reason, Joe, why we mess around here. We're going to have an amazing chat with Neil. Shall we summon him to the interview room? I would, yeah, get him in. Beep. Beep. Present D.I. Joe Marla, also present DCI. Can't believe you outranked me still. Tom Fordyce, interviewing suspect Neil. <laughs> that shit. <laughs> <laughs> do you want me to do it? Yes, please. Yeah, please. All right. Boop. What? This... Hang on, that's about right. <laughs> I've done this before, you know. This interview is being tape recorded. We're in the interview room at wherever we are. I am interviewing. Say your full name, please. Joseph Marler. Also present in the room is your legal representative. Fuck off. There's not a chance he's representing me legally. No, it might work. You've done. Okay, yes, you're lucky to have anyone. Say your name, my rep. Uh, Solicitor or barrister? No, solicitor. Solicitor, not barrister. Solicitor Tom Thomas Fordyce. Okay, this interview has been tape recorded. It may be given in evidence if your case is brought to trial. At the end of the interview, I'll give you a notice explaining what will happen to the tapes and how you may get access to them. You do not have to say anything, but it may harm your defence if you do not mention, when questioned, something which you later rely on in court. Anything that you do say may be given in evidence. The time is 
I haven't got my glasses, so I can't see my watch. <laughs> <laughs> no comment. Fair enough. Oh, right, so that's the hey, end. No, is that it? Are you oh, saying, I, got, no, I, I haven't got, asked you a question yet, or oh, you're supposed to be questioning me? I got, I got into that then. I felt like, You look really happy, Joe. Yeah, I felt like... Not oh, nervous. Right, I'm, I'm, not, uh, no, yeah, a little bit, a <laughs> little bit. I, was, I, like, I was got, got into it like, oh, fuck, I'm in one of the rooms. I actually... Does it happen? So that that's, well, like that's that. pretty much it, yeah. And then I, so I'm sat across the room from you, like, yeah. So I've been done for accused as your legal representative. You haven't been done for anything. Okay. What, I don't what, even know that? if charges haven't been laid at this point. Have no, they? no, no, not. Okay, we've just been swifted. The what's the crime? What crime have I done? You haven't done anything. Can no, I just okay, what, stop saying you've done the crime? Okay, hang on. Can we just pause the tape for a second? <laughs> what what are we what are we role playing? Um, what am I pretending to be accused what, of? What have you actually done? What in real life? Yeah. Uh, I stole loads of pistachios from co-op when I was five. Okay, that's what that's what you've we'll been go questioned theft. about. Yeah, we'll go with theft. theft. All right, food theft. So shoplifting. Yeah, I've, done, I've been done for shoplifting. No, no fucking, you're not, stop saying you've done it. Okay, now I'm panicking. No comment. That's what, I guess that's why they say no comment because usually yeah. do you get that a lot? Eighty percent of the time, ninety percent of the time, you'll be sat across the room for yeah. the accused, and you'll go. Can you tell us where you were on yeah. July the 9th? i tell you what, there's, there's, there's three things that happen, or that can happen. So you can get complete cooperation with the interview where they'll answer all the questions, maybe. doesn't happen very often. You get a complete no comment where they will literally just say no comment to every question. Or you get a qualified one where the solicitor will say, my client has a prepared statement. And the solicitor then will row and say, my client says that whilst he was in co-op, in wherever it was, he saw the pistachios, but they were planted on him by the shoplifter and he won't ask, ask, answer any more questions. And then I'll say, right, okay, thank you for that and take a copy of it. And then I'll still answer, ask all the questions. And then you'll go, no comment to each one. But that's not the end of the interview by any stretch of the imagination. The interview then goes on. We plan for no comments because they're so regular, they're so common. The whole point is because of, you heard the, the caution, one of the portions of the, of the, the caution is that um, it may harm your defence if you do not mention when questioned something you later rely on in court. So if you then say nothing and then it, when you get to court and say, oh, yeah, but he planted them on me, the court will say, well, why didn't you say that at the time? So then it's just thrown out. You're like, well, that's bollocks. You can't just say it. Yeah, if you wanted I, to use it, you had to use it then. It, I tell you what. And in things, order to use it now. It, it didn't used to be quite like that. A couple of mates of mine who are barristers, who are writers, but they're also barristers. And they say now the problem is, is juries don't believe that people wouldn't say why and what and whatever. Because in this generation of Insta, people can't have dinner without putting it on social media. So they can't <laughs> get that if someone won't go in the witness box and explain what happened, they're thinking, well, he's guilty. So it's actually made it a bit harder for defence lawyers. So that's it. So, yeah, so they're the three options. But no comment is really common. Almost routine. Right, you're a, you're a former detective yeah. turned author yeah. and you spent 25 years in the Metropolitan Police. Is that right? Yeah. Well, I started actually um, in in the, the mid-'80s. I joined the, uh, joined the RAF and I was in the, actually in the RAF police for six years. I was actually a dog handler, so I used to you know, walk around with a big fucking snarling German shepherd. These dogs were so violent. The regular police didn't even want them. These were evil, awful dogs. And so we used to, there was nothing to do really with being a cop. I was just a security guard with the dog. And I used to walk around like these nuclear sites. Back then, the Air Force had like nu nuclear weapons. And uh, so we used to patrol this, um, just around this storage area 
where they kept the nukes. And um, yeah, it's really tedious. And so I did that for six years. And then I joined the Met in 1990. And I did 25 years. So there's so much we want to talk about here, Joe, isn't there? But what about, should we start with one of the biggies? Manhunts. Manhunts are good fun. I, I spent quite a long time working on the homicide teams. And I was part of the homicide task force. So our job was, there was a, there was a couple of angles to it. One was, at the time when we first joined, it was known as the murder suppression team. And the whole, there was two points to it. One of them was manhunts. But the other one was, it's where you had in strong intelligence or good or evidence that wasn't enough to, to convict somebody that they killed someone or they were involved or they were suspected of being involved in murders. So you're talking about gangland, uh, you're talking about big, big time drug dealers, things like that. So we would get told, get them off the streets by whatever means necessary. I mean, we know, look, you know, drug dealers do tend to kill each other quite a lot. Um, so they'd say, right, well, get him off the streets and do whatever. Now, these people tended to be professional criminals, firearms, things like that. So we would then put all our efforts into proving that they're up to badness and nick them. So, I mean, if someone you think's killed someone or been involved in kills, but you can't prove it for whatever reason, you know, the intelligence that you come, that come in is from a source that if you divulge it, someone else is going to get killed because of it. So we would then um, put an operation together. It would be weeks of surveillance, tracking cars, bugging houses, you name it, in order to get evidence to take that person off the street. And then we would one day smash through their door with firearms teams and they'd be taken away. And, you know, for instance, one bloke we thought had killed someone. We also thought we knew fairly confident he was a gun supplier, but we didn't have evidence to link him to the murder. So we followed him around for a long period of time and there was technical surveillance on him. And in the end, we did a. We thought something was happening, so we put in a hard stop on him, and he was found with five kilos of coke, a quarter of a million in ecstasy pills, and what? five firearms. So a bonus, a big Brucey bonus, as they say. <laughs> so um, a big Brucey bonus. So we couldn't put pin the murder on him, but he got twenty years for everything else. You t- you talk. There was a couple of little moments there when you're talking about the, the sort of staking out manhunt process. As if like, yeah, well, we'd we'd have to put things in. Can it be a bit tedious at times where you're like, oh, fuck Yeah, this. because, I mean, I mean, actually doing active surveillance when you're live following a criminal, if he's busy, is great fun. It is literally huge fun because there's a team of you. you know, I've got to be, I, there's things I can't say about specifics, you know, because it's, you know, it's covert by nature. But obviously surveillance team, it, it's a number of officers all of whom are trained, you know, it's difficult course, it's a hard course to pass. Um, a number of vehicles, there's probably motorbikes, there may be vans. And you, as a worker, as a team, in order to follow that person, because the whole point of surveillance is he doesn't know he's being followed. Now, I could follow your average Joe around, probably just on my own, and I wouldn't get blown out. But if he's a professional criminal, he's looking for you, because he knows he's up to badness, he doesn't want to be caught. So... You are constantly bouncing that person between you. You're circulating who's got the eyeball, as we would call it. You're pulling back. You're going round. You'll take alternate routes trying to get ahead. So that's fun. That's really good fun. But in order to get to that stage, you've got to know when does he get up in the morning? When does he leave? Where's he going? So where can you pick him up from in order to stay with him? So that can often involve a long period of time just looking at someone's front door, just looking at a car to see when it moves. And you might spend days and days and days and never see him. Are you, are you usually with someone or on your own? 
Um, no, you're generally with you're with someone. Um, just because you know, just in case worst comes to worst, and you need to run away or back out, or someone sets fire to the van or whatever it is, you tend to be with someone. Um, but there, you know, the the hours are long, and it can be really hard to stay awake or to keep concentration. And you know, I we did a long period of time just as by way of an example. Um, you'll probably be familiar with the case of Levi Belfield. Scumbag. Levi, yeah, Absolute I mean, one of the worst scumbag. human, in, the worst human ever. There was a series of murders in, just for the people who won't know, in sort of southwest London. Um, a couple of girls, one called Marsha McDonald, another called Amelie Delagrange, were killed by being hit over. Was that Twickenham? Twickenham, Twickenham Green. Green. Yeah, yeah hit, hit over the head. Now, these cases were linked and a big investigation was done headed up by a guy called Colin Sutton. So I don't know if you saw Manhunt, the show. It was yeah, on TV, yeah. played by Martin Clunes. And so we were brought in because they were suspected strongly that it was Levi Belfield for a number of reasons, but very, very circumstantial. And they said, we need 24 hours a day, seven days a week on him. And so we were tasked to do it. And we were following him around West London, Middlesex, where he was out being a car clamper. And it was just hideous. You know, you, you're watching him and he's the worst person in the world. You know, you, you can see arrogance in a human. You can just see it by the way he moves, by the way he interacts. And so we, we, we were with him as, as much as we could be. There was a number of things that happened and, you know, where you might have had to call in an arrest if he was going to do something. On one particular occasion, he's driving down the road in his van. He pulls up and there's these two young girls in school uniform and he starts talking to them. And so we're radioing this back to the control and to the bosses and they're saying don't let them get in the car you, they can't get in the car they can't get in his van and we're watching and reports are coming in you know hearing it over the radio and it's he's talking to them something's going on not happy about this then all of a sudden he tells them to fuck off and there's a bit of a to-do and they look really startled and he gets in his van and drives off one of the guys calls in the backup team the backup team scoop these girls up and they said well what did he what did he do and he said well he just started being really weird with this and saying stuff to us and what did they say he said i bet you're tight fuck jesus but you know we were on the edge we were all moving up moving close in how the fuck didn't you just go there's this this bloke clearly without knowing a hundred percent how did you not just go fuck it we've got to stop this because these girls are at risk here. yeah well that's why we were with him 24 7 we were we weren't leaving him out and so that then the pressure of that is if you lose him. Because, you know, you do lose people on surveillance follows. You're going to, you know, unless you write up someone's jacksy, in which case they're going to see you. So the, the concern was, Jesus, if we lose him, imagine if we lose him and he then kills someone. You've then got to live with that. So in the end, I mean, we followed him around, for, I think it was 10 days, day and night. Uh, you know, I was getting, you know, no sleep, hardly ever went home. And then they said, right, we're going to nick him tomorrow morning. We're going through the door. They say, we just stay with him. You've got to stay with him all night. So we put in an observation point on the little estate in West Drayton where he, um, where he lived. And he went, to, went to, his, to his house and the lights went out, you know, usual at midnight, one o'clock in the morning. And they said, you've got to keep an eye on the door. So you're watching the door all night. Freezing cold. And it's that thing where you feel yourself and you're thinking, oh, I, can't, I can't, you've just got to watch. There's too much riding on this. And then we held it all night between the team. And then the next morning, the door went in, I don't know, five, six o'clock in the morning. We all then, they go, right, stand down the task force, stand down, go back to the Nick, back to just the local Nick, we're straight in. So we go there and we're waiting in the car park. The phone call comes in. He's not in there. 
You've lost him. Oh fuck, fuck. And I, and I didn't have, I didn't have eyes on it all night. But the guy who did, he said, "Look, I did not fall asleep. I did not fall asleep. I had eyes on it all night." And we're all going, "Oh no!" And then the phone call comes in from the boss. Murph's gone mad. He was the chief superintendent. Yeah. Murph's gone mental, and he said that if you've lost him, you're back in fucking uniform the next day. I said, we're all, ah, oh, shit. But then about an hour later, we get a, a call. No, he was in the loft. And he'd gone up in the loft naked and gone to the far recesses of the loft and um, lay down and just hid there. And then he eventually got him to come down. In fact, he was in there and his missus, his girlfriend at the time, the cops had been in there, sort of, you know, where is he? Where's he gone? All that sort of thing. And after a while, she just pointed to the, pointed to the loft and said he was up there. Yeah. And how how did so? You're on him. You're looking at it. You're, you're look, scoping out his house. You then go in. How does he? Did he get wind that you guys were on him then? Yeah. Well, is I mean, that, that why he just jumped into the fucking? Yeah. That, loft I mean, the door that... wasn't hoofed. As most of the time, when you do this, you just knock on the door. You yeah. Know? I mean, you, you're you you need to justify why you're gonna smash someone's door in and go rushing in. Yeah. And in a case like this, you probably can't justify it because, you know, what? what's he going to do? It's not like he's going to be... We're not after him for drugs. They're not going down the toilet or anything like that. So they just knocked on the door. And in that time, he'd, he'd hoofed it into the loft. Um, but his, his missus at the time... But now she then later on that day, because they didn't really have enough. There wasn't enough evidence. But during the course of the investigation, because, you know, they have him in custody for a period of time and they get extensions from the court. So it's, he got more than 24 hours. She eventually said, look, I'm going to tell you this now because he's raped me on multiple, multiple occasions. And she then made the allegations of rape, which allowed them then to lock him up, put him into custody on remand and then really go for all the evidence. And then they got enough evidence to charge him with the murders of, well, at the time they were charged with uh, Amelie and Marsha and then an attempted murder of a girl called Kate Sheedy that he ran over in his van and then reversed over. Yeah. And then it was only subsequently, a while later, that they linked uh, him to the, and managed to do him for Millie Dowler as well. So, yeah, that was the sort of the, the most notable of the cases I worked on during that time. How do you think you'd get on in that situation, Joe? Because you are a passionate man. If you were in that situation where you are staking out someone and you're convinced they're a bad person, they've done bad things, would you have the patience to sit there and wait? I don't think... The way you just described watching him with those pieces of shit with those two girls and then over the radio saying, no, just make sure they don't get in the car, but you've just got to see this out. See that I don't think I could. Yeah. I would probably ruin it for everyone and just go charging in there and beat fuck out of him or attempt to. I think we could do it, Joe, you and me. But that wasn't offered. Are you familiar with the film Point Break? Am I familiar with the film Point Break? Do you remember what Gary Boosie orders when Keanu goes off to get food for him? I want to say noodles. He orders a meatball sandwich. Oh. <laughs> and then he, he calls Keanu back and says, you know what? So Keanu's ready to scratch out the order. And he just goes, make that two meatball sandwiches. <laughs> I've got a feeling if you and me work together. Yeah, I'd be Gary Boosie, right? <laughs> yeah, I would, and I'd love that. Thank you. I used to work with a bloke whose um, his name was Fat Bloke. We used to call him Fat Bloke. Um, any particular reason why? No, just because he was portly. <laughs> he was uh, he was a portly fellow. Yeah, shall we say? Yep. And we all used to call him Fat Bloke, and he used to call himself Fat Bloke. He mm. would say, "Oh, mate, mm. yeah, it's Fat Bloke." Yeah, that justifies the bullying at the workplace. I get it. <laughs> it's fine because not... he he started it, so we carried it on. Yeah, absolutely. Get it. He would go, he would eat everything. 
when you're on a surveillance job with him, he would be he would go into Tesco's and buy a ten bag of like crisps, and he'd sit there the whole day. <laughs> Fat bloke would also go and buy a whole rotisserie chicken, Ooh. and he would just sit there in a car. Now you're in a car. Mm. And, you know, you've been there hours, and this man comes in with this big, giant chicken, and he would just, like, his with his hands. hands. Yeah, with his bare hands, he'd just rip off chicken. And there'd be grease everywhere, and the car would stink. I'm not- <laughs> Sorry, but that's exactly what I do. <laughs> Except I, I actually get a couple of um, the crusty tiger rolls from the bakery section Oh, so well. no crumbs then? <laughs> and so that I, I pick off all the chicken out of these rotisserie chickens, and then... I make little rolls for it. I usually have some cheese as well. So that's me. What you've just is fat bloke is actually me and what I do in the car. You're just eat, yeah, but you're an athlete, aren't you? Is fat bloke was just a fat bloke. I love how I can still get away with being amazing, an athlete. Isn't it? It's amazing. Um if I've got a black rat on sticker on the back of my car, does that mean I won't get pulled over for speeding? Right, traffic cops. Oh, Oh, there's a split between detectives well, and traffic cops. Well, the black rat, like. traditionally, because traffic cops are called known as black rats. Mm. Certainly in the Met, I don't know if that stretches outside of London. And the black rat sticker used to be a code to other black rats who will do you for speeding and all that sort of stuff that they were on the team. Yeah, bit dodgy. Yeah, bit wow. dodgy. Told you. Where'd you find that out? None of business. Move on. Okay. Swiftly. But yeah, no, you are bang on right. Thank you. Mm-hmm. I, I presume you don't like the black rats there. You know what? I know plenty of people who are traffic cops and they were fine. But um, <laughs> just fine. Yeah, no more. Okay, fine. Yeah. This episode is sponsored by the following Tim, the mess, Eaton. Double N, Nishant Nereyev. He's a top fella. It's Craig Keller. Dickie Johnson. No, it's John Dickinson. Under the sea with Sebastian Shlovsky. Mark, he's simply the best, Lee. Forgetting Angus Marshall. How does it, Neil? Neil Stewart. He ain't ever me, he's our brother. It's Neil Evermy. We Jimmy. James Napier. Burn baby Dan Burns. Matt, Ozzy Osbourne. He who cares wins, Sean Carey. And he likes to wing it, it's Rob Springit. To be more like all of them... Go to patreon.com forward slash Joe Marler Show, become an official sponsor, and grow the show today. So you joined the RAF yeah. as a police officer? Sort of, yeah. Or you just joined the RAF? I joined the RAF, RAF police, yeah. Yeah. And then you went, fuck it, I want to go real police. Yeah. Why Why detective? Well, I, I joined as a as a beat cop like everybody. Well, certainly when they've introduced our, you know, I won't even go into that because it annoys me too you much. Can, you can skip beat cop now, can't you? You can now. You, you can, can go you in can join a... as a detective, which is a terrible idea, but you'll just, I'll get annoyed and I don't want to get annoyed because I'm in a good mood. Why is it a terrible idea? Mainly, I need to ask this for a personal thing because I once sat next to a Metropolitan Police Officer. I think it was relatively high up. I can't remember his name. At a dinner and I, he said, what are you going to do after rugby then? And I said, well, I'm not sure, but I always wanted to join the police. I might join the police. He laughed in my face. <laughs> <laughs> what makes a good detective then? What is it? Is it the curiosity yeah, that uh, actually you go, it's in the name. You've got to try and detect what's going on. You've got to have that curious mind. Yeah, you've got to have that curious mindset. You've got to want to get to the bottom of things. You've got to be methodical, attention to detail. So I don't know how I managed because I've got none of those things. <laughs> But yeah, I, I, you know, a sense of fair play is another good thing. Wanting to solve big crimes, 
wanted to lock up bad guys, you know. To me, that's the driving motivation for me to join the police, was to lock up bad guys, put bad guys away. You know, people can come up with it. And I think if that's not your motivation, I wonder why you're doing it. You know, I wanted to take bad people off the streets because by doing that, you make the streets a bit safer. You could have an area that was having the arse torn out of it for burglary because a couple, a handful of burglars will, will screw an area to death. So by going after these burglars and taking them off the street, you're, you're preventing people from being burgled. So it was that. It was the desire to stop bad people being able to do bad things. Through to the end, I wanted to lock up bad guys, and that's what attracted me to it. Because you are a very successful writer of crime novels, and I want to talk about Tom Novak, who is the hero of your books. When you're trying to put a policeman or a detective together for, for a book, because there's so many cliches, aren't there, in fiction about cops. There's the maverick, he doesn't play by the rules, his partner's been shot dead, he's on a revenge mission. Uh, you take away his badge, you take away his life. What else is there, Joe? They have a notepad <laughs> that flips over yeah. and they always keep it in their inside pocket of their jacket. That's a, that's a good one. Yeah. Didn't Columbo do that? He, he was a trench coat man, wasn't he? Yeah, but he also had that notepad that you go, well, he's not actually ever used that. Yeah. He just goes, oh, yeah. It's a prop. Yeah, they're the, they're the cliches. What other detectives did you, like, big detectives that you Sweeney. go fictional? Yeah, the Sweeney. Sweeney. The Sweeney was the class. That's the best. I liked the updated Sweeney with uh, Plan B and Ray Ray Winston. Never saw that. I oh. thought it was... I thought it was a bit crap. I haven't seen Did you, have you not seen the original? I seen the You're original. too young, man. <laughs> He's too Dig young, them out yeah. and watch them because they were absolute class. What about what about Lufa? Like, should, is that is that real? No, is that, no, as no. in it's not real. But is that what happens? No, no, it's nonsense. Of course it is. Is it? Yeah, but it doesn't matter <sighs> because the characters are so good and so strong that it's compelling fiction. You know, I know. I, I mean, I write crime now. I've got two series. My first one was the Novak series which i wrote a couple of years ago the ones i'm writing now is the max craigie series scottish crime series but it's fiction so you know if i tried to make my books really true to life no, no one one's would buying read it them. no one's because they buying would it. be really really dull could you have a fictional detective called joe marla i don't see why not oh. i'll go for that what sort of man is he he's been burnt yeah he's been burnt he's carrying some scars He's carrying some emotional baggage. Oh. He's been a bit of a player in his time. <laughs> Certainly has. Guilty. He said. Also guilty. Guilty as charged. Yeah. Lock um, me up. <laughs> doesn't play by the rules. Plays by his own rules. Plays by his own rules, yeah. Is there enough cliches going on in this? What's, what's he wearing? Has he got a sort of distinctive, like Columbo has the trench coat? D.I. Joe Marlowe. Has he got a distinctive... What's a D.I.? Detective Inspector. Okay, what's a D.C.I.? Detective Consequence. No, hang on. No, Detective Chief Inspector. Oh, Right, here's another thing. This is a this is another miss. This is a thing that you see in books, right? In books, it's always the hero is always at least a DI. A DI never leaves the station. Do you start at DI or do you start at D? No, you, you start at DC. What detective constable? Constable. Constable. Then you have got a detective inspector. No. Then you have got detective sergeant, which is what I was when yeah. I left. And then you've got detective inspector. So uh, Joe Myler is in the fictional detective is what rank do we think? I reckon I can leave. You're a washed up DS. <laughs> Come out the wrong end of a marriage, all your money's gone. You're brassic, mate. Actually, I can relate to this. It's so <laughs> hard. <laughs> you don't see your kids. They wow. don't really like you because you were mean and all that sort of shit. So you don't just need the main plot when you're writing the book. You need a subplot. So the subplot is 
your marital strife. Is that also a reality if you're a detective? I mean, I'm, I am now in my second marriage and it wasn't unconnected to my job because I was always at work. And you get so wrapped up in it because everything was urgent. Everything was important. You're not, you know, when we were on the homicide teams, there was no shoplifting. This was all because someone's dead. A bloke's been stabbed in Peckham. We think we know who's done it. We've just pinged his mobile phone going up the M1. Get going. And we would literally be in the cars, blue lights going north, trying to catch up with this bloke. And that was happening all the time. And it causes huge pressure on marriages and on the mental health of some of the people who are doing it. Because when you don't have the downtime, when you're always, you know, you're behind a guy, you might kill someone. He might have a gun on him. You know, he might have a knife on him. You're, you're going to go and try and take this bloke out on the street and he might have a gun. It happened to me on two occasions. I took people out and they were carrying guns. You're all hyped and you're full of adrenaline at the time and you're buzzing because you've got this guy and he's got a gun and fucking hell, Jesus. How close was that? And then you do it and then there's all the work then to do after it because, you know, the work doesn't stop with an arrest. The work starts with an arrest and it can go on for years. If you were arrested today, Joe, in, let's, let's, let's put you into the villain's shoes now. Mm. You can be the villain. You get nicked today for something fairly substantial. You get charged and you go to court the next day and they give you conditional bail. You would be lucky to get to trial within two to three years. What? So you're on bail for two to three years. There is a massive case then to build. So if it's, I mean, I had a case against a, a corrupt solicitor. Final big job I did. Um, I was seconded to the Home Office Immigration Enforcement and there was this guy we suspected he was a corrupt solicitor. We suspected he was facilitating sham marriages where European citizens were, married, were getting married to non-European, so mostly people from Pakistan, India, Nigeria, places like that, in order to get a visa. Now, we think he was doing it on an industrial scale. We thought over a thousand we, he'd facilitated, each one of them netting him thousands of pounds. Now, he was a multimillionaire. So we went in, went through, nicked him, and we just released him on bail whilst we investigated. It took a long time to get the evidence together. It then took another two years to come to court. So from a date of arrest to the date of his conviction was three years. And that was constant work for me, nonstop, basically doing nothing else. He was defended by a very senior QC, like a very, very, very senior barrister. His legal fees were hundreds of thousands of pounds. He was employing private detectives in... India to try and debunk witnesses. I believe he had a private detective investigating me personally. What? Looking for dirt on me, something to use against against me. And this went on for three years. And this this is stressful because the consequences of me really fucking up badly is my I'll lose my job. Not because, you know, if he gets off with it, but if I've done something wrong, if they can find that I've done something wrong, something I should have done that I didn't do. I can get absolutely annihilated by the judge. It could cost me my job. I then can't pay my mortgage. You know, this can overtake you. At the end of that, I was mentally broken. How you've just described it, I picture Al Pacino in Heat mm -hmm. with the scene with his not white. They didn't get married, did they? They weren't married. Do you know the one where he were, comes yeah. home and he, this is my TV. You know what I mean? And you fucking my wife. And she's like, you're never here. And even when you are here, you're not present because you care more about your work. And it's like, yeah, yeah, OK, that is the reality of it. But if you didn't care about your work in that detective role, you could be letting these guys, you could miss a beat. And yeah, 
And he gets off. He goes and kills someone else. Well, that, and that responsibility means that you have to commit 100% to it. Yeah. It, and, it, it, you know, there was, uh, there's loads of cases. There's all these things I did. And, it, and, and the stress can be significant. I don't know if you've heard of the innocence tax. Here's another one. This will blow your mind. Right. So, Joe, I'm going to keep putting you in the, in the seat here. You Cheers. do something, right? Yeah. Something is alleged of you. So someone says, Joe Marler beat me up and stole all my money. Yeah. And they're lying. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. But there's enough evidence. They're definitely fucking lying. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They're lying, sir, judge, sir, judge. So you get nicked, you get charged, and you get put before the court. Now, you earn enough that you're not going to qualify for legal aid. So you'll have to fund your own defence. Serious money. Serious money if you're paying privately. You then potentially have three years with it hanging over you. You then go to court. Your barrister, who's costing you £500 a day, you're you're probably in the hole at that stage. If it's a serious thing, you're probably in the hole for uh, 150. Easily could be 100, 150 grand. Your barrister's brilliant, though. Destroys the witnesses and you get acquitted. And you get told, you may leave without a stain on your name. You are clearly, clearly innocent. You can claim your legal expenses back, but you only get it back at legal aid rates. If you'd spent 150 grand, you'd be lucky to get 20 grand back. Fucking hell. A sentencing hearing once for another one. Another Bent solicitor. Um, the world is not full of Bent solicitors, <laughs> but it was another Bent solicitor job. So a big job. Bloke had been doing all sorts. Big, you know, really serious job. The prosecution counsel came in um, and he was only obviously on government rates. He was a very senior barrister. He's now a, a, a treasury council barrister, which is the top end, real expert, expert bloke. We spent all day at uh, Snaresbrook Crown Court. The prison service didn't produce the bloke in the end. So... We all just got told, go away, come home. We have to come back another day. And he looked at me, he goes, do you know how much I got paid for today? How much do you reckon? Top end prosecution barrister at the very top of his profession. So he should be earning what if he was doing... Oh, I mean, if on private rates, it's serious, serious, you know, good dough, 500 pounds. I don't, I don't know, but it's serious money. He got 46 pounds 50. 46 quid? 46 pounds 50 for that day's appearance. However, he has to pay for his own travel. So, and I think he lived in South London. So to get from South London to Snaresbrook in Essex... He's out of pocket. He's out of pocket. Not he's, even fucking doing his job. He's yeah. just turning up at places that he's been sent home to so, do. So the fact is now that in the legal profession, it's hemorrhaging staff because they can't afford it. Criminal defence rates are derisory. Absolutely derisory. Let's so, say that in the case of Joe, who's been accused of not just stealing a bag of pistachios from the cop, but large-scale pistachio laundering. Oh, yeah. Joe has gone on the run. Yeah, yeah. How easy is it for Joe to disappear? It's very hard for Fuck anyone off. to disappear. Not a chance. What? Not finding you? You're not, mate. You know that um, Channel Four Hunters Hunted? Hunted Hunted Hunted. That's the one. Me and Daisy often watch that. We love it. We like thinking what we try and scope out what we'd do and how we'd get away with it. And we look at we go, how the fuck are they getting caught? You're thick. You're so thick. You know. You go out. You get a load of cash and some. Uh, cashews and raisins because the cashews are really high uh, calorie dense, yeah, yeah, yeah. Ca- calorie dense. Loads of protein, thingy, so all that lot, and keep it in there. And the raisins, a little bit of sweetness because a bit of sweet too. Mm. And you get your sleeping bag and you get your tent and you just fuck off into the woods. Yes, you could, right? If you were willing to cut yourself off from the rest of humanity for the rest of time, you could stay hidden. Of course, you could. If you could find somewhere. But you know what? People in remote areas, people think, I'll run off to a remote area. That's the worst place to go. Why? Because someone's going to see you. Yeah, but it's remote. And, and then that's not normal. 
What do you mean it's not normal? People I would run, clearly run camouflage the... myself. Because <laughs> you get those sticks that have got yeah. black and green. I'd put them over my face and I'd also chop some leaves and stick them around me so I look so like beard. Sasquatch. Yeah. And then you'll scare the shit out of a dog walker one morning and they'll say, Joe Marler is hiding in a bush oh, over there. Call the cops. Fuck. And yeah. because you're Joe Marler, yeah. your, your boat will have been plastered all over the telly yeah. and you'd be swifted in by the end of the day not if I'm in a green morph suit mate yeah I mean <laughs> hunted hunted everyone watches hunted I've watched it once or twice I actually did get asked to be a hunter oh, on it. did you yeah but I didn't fancy it oh I just couldn't be bothered basically. oh fair yeah <laughs> that's the long and the short of yeah, it couldn't yeah. be asked yeah but really, you know, of course, it's just entertainment, isn't it? I mean, you hear it and they go, used to be Peter Blexley that was the chief, wasn't it? He would go, uh, right, yeah, get the AMPR on that. And I'm thinking, well, you're not getting the AMPR on that. You haven't got access to that. What's, yeah, what, where's the AMPR? Automatic That's... number plate recognition. Oh, so obviously. Like, yeah, and uh, yeah, plug in the CCTV at that location. Well, you're not doing that either. Uh, right, we're going to triangulate the phone. Well, you're not going to do that, are you? Because you haven't got access to that. So of course it's just it's just drama. It's just telling. Of course it's just all set up, isn't it? Yeah. They, they know when they're going to catch people yeah. because it's all it's all scripted. That's really ruined it for me, if I'm honest. Sorry, Joe. Because I was just going to go off to the, in the woods with my cashews. This is the thing, right? Anyone? Yeah, you could if you wanted to cut yourself off from the rest of society, humanity, your family. Never see any of your family again. Never talk to any of your family again. You had somehow enough cash to somehow fund your lifestyle. Cash is really dying out now, anyway. So, yeah, people do disappear, but not many people disappear forever. But could you get abroad? You probably could. But really, the difficulty comes is that your average person doesn't want to run away from their family. So if, if you're a criminal on the run, firstly, what are you running from and where are you running to? We all live lives on mobiles now. You know, a mobile phone isn't just a phone, is it? It's a supercomputer. So there's all sorts of things you can do around people's phones. You, did the, you, know, you ditch your phone, so you've run off, Joe. You're thinking... I'm going to have to run off of Daisy and the ankle biters for a little bit. So you've ditched your phone. You've got yourself another car, so it's not registered to you. Although there is an audit trail. There's always an audit trail. You'd always find it. You've disappeared off somewhere. Now, you've gone and holed up in a shit B&B in, I don't know, Wigan. Yeah. Yeah? <laughs> no offence to Wigan. <laughs> okay. Not renowned for their B&Bs. Yeah. So yeah. you're in your shit B&B in Wigan, but you're missing Daisy. So you think, I know what I'll do. I'll get another mobile and I'll start calling her from a new mobile. Mm. So you start calling her from your new mobile. But what I'm doing as a cop is I'm looking at Daisy's mobile. I've got access to Daisy's cell site and billing information. And I'm seeing that Daisy has started to receive phone calls since you've gone missing from this phone number. Ah. I then look at your phone number. No, no, no. I... But that's where you, you, you're wrong. Okay. You're wrong. So I'd get a phone, a new phone, yeah. yeah, and instead of calling her, yeah, I would end-to-end encrypted WhatsApp her pictures of my knob. <laughs> so it wasn't actually my face, so you couldn't tell it was me. No, no, you're right. There's and, very strong encryption. And, you, and there's very little uh, evidence out there at the moment of my knob. So Pete, no one would recognise my knob except Daisy. And it's end-to-end encrypted, meaning something. Okay. And I'm not sure what it means. <laughs> but I still know you're still hitting cell towers. That phone number is still hitting cell masts to get the signal. So it's hitting cell masts. I will see that Daisy is receiving data. On your phone. <laughs> Small amounts of data. Small amounts of data. 
Yeah, okay, fine. Unless you zoomed. I had that coming. I'm not going to see your penis because <laughs> I don't get to see the contents of the message, but I'll see that messages have been sent. We then look at your phone and we can then we can see exactly where you're phoning from. And my current reckoning, I have one million more questions, Neil. Let's have a little time out there for some adverts. Those were clearly the ads. Joe, you've got your question face on. Go. Beep. You've committed a crime. Okay. Yeah. And we need to get to the bottom of it. And we we can't prove it. DCI Tom and DI Joe, or DS Joe. You, you're washed up DS. Who's the boss out of you two? Guilty. You're the boss. So yeah. you, you need to be at least what you're... If he's a... What were you? Oh, mate, he's DCI. D- he's a ch- chief inspector. You're only a sergeant. Unlucky. You need to be a superintendent then. I'm a DSI then. Detect- just detective superintendent. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm your boss, okay? Mm. And before before we go into this, mm-hmm. okay, I'm going to go hard at this interview, all right? Yeah. You play the good. You you, okay. you sort of soften the blow. I like it, okay. Let's do it. You all right? Okay. Beep. Yeah, every pre- you've, everyone um, present, yeah, I'm here, you're here. Neil's here, yeah, if you use it in evidence, fucking, I don't give a shit. You're fucking going to tell me everything you know, you piece of shit. No comment. What do you mean, no comment? No comment. Well, technically, (laughs) you've just made a comment. (laughs) By saying no comment, you piece of shit. So one nil me. Okay, where's my brief? What brief? Where's my solicitor? Take your briefs off. (laughs) If I were you, Neil, I mean, I've seen this man in action before. He's merciless. Yeah. He's merciless, less, less. Um, I've seen what he's done in the rugby field. I mean, yeah. between you and me, I'd play ball with this man. Tickling. Exactly. Well played. Well played from both of you. You, I told you outside, play the good cop, not the fucking idiot cop. <laughs> yeah? You can't even say merciless. This is how bad a cop he is, what? Uh, Neil, because he's even having a go at his... His colleague here. Yeah, because I haven't got my head in the fridge. It's in the fucking oven. Tell me where you were last night or I'm going to throw my hot tea in your face. Yeah, that doesn't play well with judges now. He means ah, we got more than no comment out of him. Fucking two nil us. First crack. Anyway, the, the point, the really shit point I'm trying to make is, do interrogations like that actually happen? No. So is it literally just you're better off just Stick into the rule book. You have to. You've got no choice. It's tape recorded. Most of the time, it's video recorded now. Surely there's there's stuff that... I want to believe there's stuff where they go, turn the tape off for a minute. Yeah. And then I bang your head on the thing like Batman and the Joker. If you're 99.9% sure the bloke across the table from you or the woman across the table from you is a serial killer, you've got everything, but you need this one bit of thingy and you just beat fuck out of his head... And then you get the answer, that one bit of it. Surely that's worth doing it. How can you not well, do that? Because it would be ruled as inadmissible. Oh, see, that's bad. Because it, you just can't do it. And oh. the fact is, the more serious the case, the more seriously you have to take it. I mean, interviews now, they get to the point of being almost scientifically worked out. You'll have an interview coordinator who will discuss with the SIO a strategy and there'll be a written interview strategy about where you go. And, you know, we expect no comments. And most of the time it will be a no comment. But it is the more serious the case, the more important it is to literally stick to the rule. You have to stick to the rules because it's all. And if you do that and threaten someone and even raising your voice a bit, they'll say we suggest this is oppressive and therefore 
they might rule the whole interview inadmissible. Right, so uh, that doesn't happen. I've always been intrigued as to what laundering. I always used to think it was literally putting all this like criminal money that was dirty <laughs> in, or in covered the... in blood and you wash it all. And what's really interesting about it is obviously in a criminal case, the defendant doesn't have to prove a thing, yeah? They always say, the judges will always say, the Crown brings the case, the Crown must prove the case. The defence doesn't have to prove anything. However, once you convict somebody of a certain type of offence, call it a Schedule 2 offence, so basically acquisitive crimes, crimes that profited you in some way, then an enormous bit of legislation, Proceeds of Crime Act, comes into, into being. Now, so again, Joe, you've been the bad guy again. You've been dealing massive amounts of drugs yeah. for several years. Yeah. We've caught you red-handed. Mm. You fought the case, but we found you guilty. The judge has now said, right, okay, the POCA hearing starts, proceeds of crime. So what that then does means that a financial investigator, police officers specifically trained in this angle and this aspect of, of policing, can then go back with forensic accountants and look at all your income and all your outgoings for the past six years. They can do, they'll do the sums and they will say, we believe you've profited over the last six years, four million quid. So we are saying that four million quid, you're going to have to give us, prove us wrong. So the whole burden of proof shifts. Ooh. So it would now be up to you to prove to the court that you have, that, that I haven't that, that isn't four mil. Money. Yeah. And it is incredibly powerful legislation and it's draconian. Now, you'll hear about, I don't know if you've heard about the Adams family, the A-Force. They're an Islington-based gang. They're sort of, sort of celebrity criminals, but at the very, very, very top end of criminality. One of the main people involved in that ended up locked up, not because they caught him doing a crime, but because he, he, he basically got rich with no source. And so they come to the point and they say, right, OK, we think you've profited to the amount of a million quid. Give us a million quid. Doesn't do it, gets put in jail. So say you get two years in jail for not stumping up the two million quid or whatever it is you earn. When you come out of jail two years later, you still owe it. Oh, so it doesn't work this late. No. Nope. Fucking hell. Well, hang on. How am I ever getting out of this? Well, you're not. You've got to come up with your, four, your four million quid. Because we're, and unless you can then prove, and I mean, obviously you'll then make a counter argument, your solicitor, your barrister will make a counter argument. He doesn't know four million quid, and these are the reasons why, because we can prove where 2.6 million of it, where, where it came from. And if that's the case, and you prove the money has a legitimate source. I only have to give you 1.4. Yeah. Well, that's easy. Who's the loser now? <laughs> so, yeah, no, it's powerful legislation. It's actually draconian, and it is, they um, hate it more than jail. They hate it more than the jail. I mean, that you look really happy as you're saying. That. <laughs> oh yeah, it's fucking fantastic. There's nothing better than taking money off people, legitimately, and then just saying, "All right." <laughs> what about if the criminal, if Joe, has someone on the inside a as bent a bent cop. copper? They must have to have organised crime. Can't remain organised unless they've got someone on the inside doing um, shit. Surely, very serious crime would find it difficult to operate without some degree of corruption. And that corruption is rare. I'm not going to... It is, honestly, it's really rare. I, I never saw... With my own two eyes, I never saw it. That's what a corrupt officer would say. Which is exactly what a corrupt <laughs> officer would say. However, you would hear stories for you know, little things that would happen. There was once a period of time when we were doing like these pan-London jobs or national jobs, 
you go, you know, very often if you say, right, we're doing a job in Chelsea. Um, we'll meet at Chelsea, Nick, and we'll start there. So you start your surveillance job. You have your briefing and everything at Chelsea, Nick. And then you go out and do your work. There were certain police stations we wouldn't go to. Really? At one period of time. Because if a surveillance team turned up ready to go and do a job, a word would go in. That, no fucking way. Well, and it's not even high-level corruption a lot of the time. Very often this isn't even, it's not like a senior cop or anything like that. It is just, it could be that the cleaner would see that there's a load of different cops on the ground. They see a load of different cops dressed like I am now, the surveillance cars all parked up. Maybe you're getting armed up. Maybe you, you know, people are, you know, cops are tooling up because it's a dangerous job. The phones start ringing and the local villains will get a phone call from, and it could be the cleaner, it could be a cop, it could be a traffic warden, it could be a member of civil staff, could put a phone call in and say there are covert cops on the ground. Mother of God. Jesus, Mary. And the, and the oh, wee donkeys. The wee donkeys. Sit down there. So, yeah, it does happen. But, I mean, more than... And then, obviously, you can go to different levels. I mean, where it, it, corruption just not within police, within law, within the legal system. It, because money laundering, which we, we briefly touched upon, needs a lot of help from lawyers to make money clean. So if you've got a lawyer willing to take dirty money and make it clean money, big crime probably can't survive without some degree of corruption. There have been cases. There was one, I think it was up north somewhere where a criminal family got one of the extended family to join the police with the express intention that years down the line, he may then be an asset to them. Whoa. And I honestly, I never saw anything where I thought, bent bastard. I never saw that because I would have done something about it because a bent cop is a scumbag who deserves to go to jail as far as I'm concerned because it impacts on all of us who are out there working hard, you know? You know, there was a, a few years ago, there was a guy who was ex regional crime squad, as it was called at the time, and he got caught on tape offering to sell someone a surveillance log. Now, you know, surveillance, when you go out and you do a surveillance job, you're logging. You see, you've, got, you've got a dedicated logist to write down exactly what's happening. And the conversation was, how much is it going to cost me? And the answer was 30 large. So 30 grand, you know, that was a few years ago. Are you, so if I offered you, say you're still working in police and I was... Um, What's a, what's an informant? Just an well, we just call them informant. Oh, in fact, in the, in the UK, they're known as a CHIS, a CHIS. Co covert human intelligence. There source. you go. CI Sorry. is America. There you go. And uh, I've bought you breakfast one morning. For some reason, I've offered to pay for breakfast after giving you some information, and then that's been reported, and you've got in trouble for accepting like a bribe. But well, it wasn't yeah. a bribe. It was I bought you breakfast. I tell you stuff what, like that. Well, doing it with an informant is incredibly risky. <laughs> I mean, informants are... I, mean, I used to work with informants a lot and it, it's really rewarding, it's really good. And, but some of them are absolute scumbags. Absolute. <laughs> are you not accepting my breakfast? Well, I'm not from you, man. <laughs> but really, right? So if you're a villain and you decide to go and grass on your mates, well, you're, you're, by definition, you're a scumbag because you're a criminal yourself and yet you're, you're then grassing on your mates. But Some say scumbag. Others say genius. But again, I'll, I'll Get make... Get rid of the competition. I'll make the same point. Big time policing in terms of big, serious, organised crime type things cannot survive without it. They save lives. Major terror attacks have been foiled because of an informant. Murders have been foiled because of an informant. I mean, I'll tell you a very brief story about something that came from an informant. 
and informant was an absolute arsehole. He was such <laughs> a scumbag. But he came in and said, I've been asked if I know somebody who will kill someone. Um, okay. The long and the short of it was, he said, I, I, there's another middleman that they want to meet and they basically want two people killing. Right. So we start to look into it. He goes, I've got a meeting with this bloke in a couple of days' time. And he's going to, he wants two people killing. So what do I do? And so we put a job together and we intercepted it. And we we couldn't, what we couldn't do is we couldn't go out and arrest for the whole conspiracy to murder and all things like that. We, what we couldn't do is, is divulge the informant. Because if you don't divulge or even put it out there, they think it, who it might be, that person's going to get wiped out. So we, the informant, went and met this bad guy who we didn't know who he was. had no idea who he was. It was just a third, all done via a third person. So they met him in this calf. We had somebody in the calf. One of our guys was in the calf. Let the meeting go down. Let them get talking. And then we swooped and we nicked them both. So we nicked the informant and the bad guy. The bad guy was the most frightening man I've ever seen in my life. He was five foot eight, probably 11 and a half stone. He was um, an Albanian. His eyes, there was something in his eyes. He's just cold. And he was totally unconcerned when, like, literally, because we got a whole, you know, the TSG, you heard of the TSG? These are the guys who go around in the riot vans. We got them to storm this place and take him out because we didn't know what was going on. We didn't know if he was armed. We didn't know if he had knives or anything. And he was totally unconcerned. He was totally calm and totally cool. And we ended up getting him. We got him nicked and went in. Now, we knew we didn't have the evidence. We knew we didn't have the evidence. This was purely a disruption exercise that would never end up in court. But what we needed to do is get in, let them know that we knew there was something happening so it wouldn't happen. And in the end, we did it. I found a piece of paper in this bloke's pocket with a couple of names on it. So we looked into these names and it turned out they were just innocents. They were complete innocents. They weren't bad people. These were two people who had provided services or business type support to another individual who was in a country with no extradition treaty and he wanted them whacked because they'd basically had a minor dispute with them. He wanted them whacked because of it. In the end, I got this bloke out and we had to let him go because there was no evidence. But then he came back in a couple of days later to get all his property, which we'd seized off him. And he was quite open and talked to me, but spoke like this, you know. He was really frightening and he was only small. And he was also, what did you do? I, no, I can't tell you anything. You, I said, you know these people. Who are these people? Because I don't know. I just have them in my pocket. And I goes, but mate, they're just innocents. I goes, this is, they've got kids, you know, they're no, and he, I, he was shocked. He was visibly shocked when I told him, these just are innocents. And he goes, I'm not happy. I don't do this for that. <gasps> I goes, look, are you going to assure me that nothing's, you can't do, you know? And he goes, no, that's it. It's over. I never deal with this man again. And that was it. And he left. And were they okay? They were fine. <laughs> They will never know that a man they will never meet has saved their life. No, we had to go and find them. <laughs> Didn't tell them. Yeah. <laughs> We're obliged to tell them. You would have died, uh, you, and if it wasn't for me... Hi, I haven't met you before. It's <laughs> yeah, Tom. Oh, i got to tell you what. Oh, no. There's another little, little add-on to this, which is worth saying. So this person, we went to see him, and I said, look, we've received credible intelligence that there has been a threat against you. And he was shocked. What? What? I've never done anything. You know, I never... I'd go, I'd go, and we said, blah, blah, blah. 
So I was saying, you know, where, where's the connection? What was trying to think, what is the connection between these people? So he goes and he's that he sat there with his wife and he goes, the only thing I can think about is that two years ago I had an affair. <gasps> his wife goes, <gasps> sorry, you can't see me, can you? But I'm doing it. I'm doing it. I'm doing an open mouth. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> so he put his hands up to an affair in front of his wife. And I said, well, can it be blah, blah, blah. So we carried on talking and I, I then said, have you heard of this name? Mr. X, I will refer to him. And he goes, yeah, my company did a bit of business with him. And I went, oh, it'll be that then. He goes, ah! And he goes, oh, not the affair then. I went, <laughs> no. Oh, but so the upshot of that story is, from an informant that I say there can be scumbags, two decent, honest people mm. remain living and breathing to this day. There's upsides and there's downsides to it, but they are tricky bastards to handle. They are tricky bastards to handle, and you've got to watch them. Just on the subject of bent coppers... How does a good copper turn bad? How do they get them on the hook? Right, this is the problem. In the same way that you can't be half pregnant, you can't be half corrupt. The old sort of example, you stop someone for speeding and he's got nine points. So Joe is driving his expensive car. Haven't got nine points and I drive a polo, but carry on. Right, so you're nine points, you get pulled, you go, here you go, geezer. There's a cheeky score for you to look the other way. If that cop takes that, from that moment on, he stepped over that line. From that moment on, you are corrupt and you can never be uncorrupt after that. Now, say that you've got a little scheming mind. Far worse, you could then go to the bosses in the police and say, look, I really feel bad that I did this and I attempted to corrupt a, a public official. I will go on record as long as you give me immunity and say that he took a score off me. And there's a good chance you'd get it because catching a bent cop is more important than your speeding ticket. So my point is, if the, you do something that's wrong for the wrong person who then sees that as an opportunity, they will capitalise upon that. And if you get someone who becomes who's a major villain, if they can prove it, so if you've been filmed or whatever, they've got you. And then you're corrupt and you'll never be uncorrupt. What about good villains? Surely, like you said about CI or no, informants, it always takes me back to Alice in uh, Lufa. Yeah, but you meet villains that you really like. And you do meet some that I, I remember one geezer who was a terrible, terrible crackhead. A really bad. I, but he was the loveliest man. Oh. He really was a real top bloke. And he would just steal from cars. Back in the days when people, because nobody, nobody really steals from cars anymore. But back in the day, of course, nicking car radios was a big thing. And he has this awful crack habit. But I got on really well with him. And when he was on the crack, he wouldn't eat. So he caught him again. Oh, come on, you come. Take him in. And he was the nicest fella. He never complained. He never argued. He always had a smile on his face. And he'd always walk through the door and say, Neil, can, I, can you get me something to eat? And I'd go and get him, because uh, out of ours, you get the little microwave meals in the, in the nick. They're the ones you don't even have to keep in the fridge. They're that horrible. Oh. <laughs> and I would take him three of these, like, Vesta curries or whatever they were. And he would smash them down. And... Um, it would be really grateful. And he, I wish I'd tried to get him to grass, and he never would, never grass. So he goes, look, mate, I'd really like you, Neil. You're a good guy, but I won't ever be a grass. But if I ever see you out, I'll always help you out. Go, and he would. I found myself once then in a situation where I was in Harlesden somewhere, and I was on my own, and I saw a dodgy bloke, so I thought, I'm going to turn him over. So I pull him over, start searching him. Two of his mates come out of the woodwork and decide they're going to try and get their mate, you know, and it becomes a bit of a tear-up. So I'm having a minor tear-up in Harlston on my own. Out of nowhere, the crackhead that I give meals to 
who was actually a hard case, despite it all, he's a proper little bundle of hard case energy, comes in and starts backing me up and he had my back. And that felt good. And that felt good. Did the crack also make him <laughs> invulnerable to pain so he was even handier as a sidekick? Yeah. I, yeah someone who's on it in a real crack place, they, they do get impervious to pain and they can be hard to deal with. If you speak to any cops now, standard, you know, your street cops, your uniform cops, you speak to people say, basically, I work for the, we work in with the National Health Service now because nearly all their time is dealt dealing with people in mental health crisis. And handling them can be so difficult. You know, and you feel bad, you know, you feel bad because you, you, we're not trained for, you know, cops ain't trained for that. So it is, it is really bad. And you do meet people. Yeah. And they can be frightening. It can, there was one guy, Jesus, he was frightening, bigger than you. So strong, such an immensely strong man. And he was on the cusp, between, on, the, on that thing between being mentally unwell and being well all the time. And he was a 10 man job. If he went, he's a 10 man job to try and bring him in. So I, I wouldn't try because it wasn't worth getting hurt for. Unless, you know, there's times when you have to take someone in. But if someone's just being a nuisance, I, I wouldn't try because it, I'm liable going to get some of my guys hurt, you know. So, yeah, it's hard. And dealing with people who are the, the whole thing you used to see on the bill where PC Polly Page, who was eight stone ringing wet, would put someone of your size, Joe, into a quick hammerlock and bar. Ha! Yeah, okay. You know, <laughs> it is difficult. You're uh, so you've done you've done. I, your first I, I've book. done three books in the first series that have been out a while. I'm on, I've written two books in the last couple of years. I've written um, Dead Man's Grave, which has been out what well, since July, and there's another one called um, The Blood Tide. Yeah, that's actually really good. They're nice, aren't they? Yeah, they are great. I'm going to nick one of those to the train journey home. No, why? We're talking to an ex-detective, and you're talking about oh, theft. Shit. You can't steal, oh. okay? bollocks what's the blood tide about then um the blood tide is about drug importation into the west coast of scotland via all the sea locks because after brexit there are far more checks going in at the ports so the importing gangs are trying to bring them in now through sea locks so i wanted to talk about that and basically a fisherman goes missing on one of these locks having been shot in the head by some bad guys who are even badder that is badness yeah well, and, it's, and my my man, Max Craigie, DS Max Craigie, has to investigate this. And he finds that things are not what they seem and there is possibly corruption afoot. Oi, oi, oi. No, no. What? Oi, oi, oi. <laughs> Who the fuck says oi, oi, oi? Me. Fair. Keep my reaction in, please, Steve, um, because I have some important news to impart, Joe, which is that our listeners can also get their hands free gratuit on some of neil's books we've got some to give away if you're listening to this and you've enjoyed this episode as much as joe and i have and you would like to read one of neil's books all you've got to do is tag us on twitter or instagram at joe marler show and say quote please can i have one of neil's books we'll pick two at random and then send you a book can't say fairer than that. No, you can't. I was just about fucking I didn't, know, I, I didn't know you were doing that. We're, what, re what we're nice really thing. up in the game here. Aren't you aren't just? We? Steve, is, uh, the ones we're going to give away to the listeners, were those the ones I wanted to take back? <laughs> so there's been a mistake on today's show. There are now no books for listeners. <laughs> but please still enter. <laughs> my my lovely publicist is out there, Sean, and I'm sure she can make sure there are heaps and heaps and heaps of books ready for people. By that, I mean two. <laughs> Neil, I've... 
I could sit here all day. Me too. And uh, chat shop. You know what I mean? Is that, is You're that... on the inside, aren't you? Yeah, I'm on the inside. There's so many things we didn't get to as well. No. I could tell you some horrible stories, but, you know, we'll oh, come well, back well, another well, time. Well, yeah, I'll we, come back yeah, another time. Another time. Next book. Um, body, dead body competitions. We used to have competitions about dead bodies. Who had the worst, most gruesome story about dead bodies? Because we see dead bodies all the time. There's loads of them. Fucking hell. Should have mentioned it earlier, shouldn't I? Best one. <laughs> Tom's just... But yeah, why not go then? Right, I mean, cops get called to dead bodies all the time because mm. pe- people are dying all the time, as mm. we well know, just because they're just dying. Joe, I see you smiling. Like we're really looking forward to this story. Well, no, but... <laughs> remember, like, look at this, like excited kids going... <laughs> Between two, one where we went through the door, someone hadn't been seen for four months. Fucking hell. And now what we've got to do, obviously no. got to make sure there's nothing suspicious. So we had to search a three or four month old corpse. Me and a mate of mine. Oh, no, 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 no. no Nick no, Wilcox, in no, case he listens. No, 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 no. Little chubby no, bloke. No, Very good at rugby Nick, was Nick. in the day. Oh, he was. Yeah. Um, what was the other one? Another one, it was raging hot weather. And I went through and Jesus... The smell was just, you. oh, my God, you wouldn't believe it. And I went in and saw this person on the floor, and I thought, are they still moving? And no, it was the maggots. Oh, oh yeah. And I sort of looked down, and I thought, the guy, can you give a description of him? Yeah, he's a 35-year-old, looks about maybe 30 to 40. He's a black guy. Go around, look for his passport, found his passport, and there's a picture of a white guy. He wasn't a black guy. Is just in 24 hours, his body, because it was so hot, had gone like decomposed. Oh, fuck me. And it's it's with that, I'd like to thank you very much for coming on the show. It's my pleasure. It's been lovely. Joe, I enjoyed the episode so much that I think we should give Neil's new book one more plug. It is called The Blood Tide. The Blood Tide. The Tide of Blood. No, it's The Blood Tide. I was just. I'm gutted though. Why? Fuck. It was. Like it was on my main question sheet. I just wanted to ask him if he did. What are you doing? I got you. You nicked. Whilst flipping his wallet out with his ID in it. But, you know, that probably would have wasted the fact that he had incredible stories. And that probably would have sounded really shit anyway. So I'm glad I didn't ask it, actually. When you become a detective, because it is only a matter of time, how will you show your badge? I would wear it on a lanyard everywhere I go so that everyone knows I am a detective and I'm always detecting. Do you think that you, after your long career in rugby, that you have been institutionalised to the use of lanyards? Yes, and I'm still not entirely sure where... Why is it called a lanyard? It's a yard of lan, isn't it? If you cut the string and you measure it, it's a whole yard. I think we should cut this end now because <laughs> it's gone on long enough and he was great well if you enjoyed that as much as joe and i did and you'd like to support the show you can now subscribe on apple spotify and patreon search for joe marler show and for a single pound a week you can get bonus content ad free episodes and you'll be growing the show at the same time if you would like another podcast to listen to let me tell you about the secret history of flight 149 Now, this is the story of ordinary passengers on a trip from London to Malaysia who were taken hostage by Saddam Hussein when they stopped to refuel in Kuwait. It is an incredible story of undercover operations, cover-ups, human shields and a 30-year fight for the truth. You have to listen to believe their stories. Search for Secret History of Flight 149 in your podcast app now. 
Network.